There's a lot you can say about Airport. You could say it was one of the biggest hits of the year, grossing over $100 million. In fact, it was the biggest hit in the history of Universal Pictures at that time. You could say it spawned three sequels. And let's not forget that it directly inspired the film that features this classic line. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? Of course, few would argue that Airport was the best picture of that year, although it did receive an Oscar nomination in that category, and in nine others. It even won the Best Supporting Actress category for legendary screen star Helen Hayes. Well, on behalf of dear Helen, who is first lady of the theater, and certainly first tonight in most of our hearts, I know that she would want me to thank George Seaton, who directed her in the film, and her beloved friend, and that great and wonderful producer, Mr. Roth Hunter, who produced the film. Thank you very much. Yes, there's a lot that you can say about Airport. But most people would say that Airport set the template for the disaster movie phenomenon. A seemingly insurmountable threat, a big canvas, and an even bigger cast of movie stars. Airport, the year's most widely read novel, becomes today's most exciting, most timely motion picture. Airport, big scale in every way, has the biggest all-star cast ever assembled for a single universal motion picture. Burt Lancaster, Dean Martin, Gene Seberg, Jacqueline Bisson, George Kennedy, Helen Hayes, Van Heflin, Maureen Stapleton, Barry Nelson, Lloyd Nolan, Donna Winter. Author of the Golden Age of Disaster Cinema, Nick Havert. It's kind of it set the bar where people are like, wow, we want this big, you know, special. Look at all these movie stars in these, you know, in these gorgeous Edith Head outfits and you know, it just became so lush. And plus, it's it's so fun to look back, especially at like movies like Airport, to see air travel as it was back then. And you just go, wow, it was so much simpler. You know, it's a simpler time where give them your name and where you were born, and they stamp your ticket and you're good to go. <laughs> and that's it. And <laughs> it's just fascinating to look back and, you know, people are smoking in the cabins and the cockpits and these huge open overhead bins and people letting strangers hold their babies. And just, it's crazy. Based on the best-selling Arthur Haley book from 1968, Airport follows an abundance of characters. The passengers of a crowded commercial airplane. Are we going to turn back? You're not that important. The pilots who are tasked with ensuring safe travel. I'm not using full power. It's too risky. And the airline personnel who work to maintain operations in the grips of a deadly snowstorm. Well, what are you doing about it? Well, when the snow melts in April, we'll get it out. What the hell do you think I'm doing about it? Throw in a mad bomber, and you have all the ingredients of a blockbuster disaster film. Grab him! He's got a bomb! <laughs> Airport was adapted for the screen and directed by George Seaton, a filmmaker who started his career working alongside the Marx Brothers and went on to great acclaim with 1947's Miracle on 34th Street. But as it turned out, 
Seton was not the only one calling the shots behind the camera on airport. Well, George, George Seton prepared uh, airport and then he got sick. He was sick. He had the flu or something at the first six weeks of the show. So Universal bought in Henry Hathaway, and Henry did all of the exteriors at uh, in Minneapolis at the Walt Chamberlain Airport. And Henry was a pistol. He was he got really great film, a, a very very much like John Ford, but um, at the same time he was a bastard to work for. He was terrible to people. The voice you just heard belongs to Harvey Laidman. Mr. Laidman went on to direct some of the most successful shows of the latter part of the 20th century, including Matlock, The Waltons, and Seventh Heaven. But his first official credit was as an assistant director on Airport, where a significant portion of his job consisted of corralling the impressive cast. And we all stayed, we stayed downtown at these two hotels. Uh, the crew stayed at the Leamington, and, and the rest of the cast stayed, stayed across the street. So we used to call up the buffet across the street and, and make reservations for Dean Martin so that we could get in early. <laughs> we had a, we'd, we'd come home from work at, uh, at about 8 o'clock in the morning, every morning, uh, and the the sidewalks were really slick and icy, and uh, and we'd go to these uh, these little uh, uh, greasy spoons down, downtown in Minneapolis, and 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 eat a full dinner at nine o'clock in the morning. We did a lot of night shooting. They took the whole back parking lot at Universal and put snow on it, and got the body of a DC-8. And uh, and put the body on there, uh, and shot closer shots uh, of the work that that Henry had done in uh, in Minneapolis. We, we shot on the back lot for God knows how many nights. This is Dick Stroud at Universal City in California on the set of the new Ross Hunter production for Universal of Arthur Haley's famous bestseller Airport, for which a dozen of Hollywood and Broadway's greatest names have been cast. Among them are Burt Lancaster, Gene Seberg, George Kennedy, Helen Hayes, Van Heflin, and many more, including my very special guest taking a few minutes out between scenes, Dean Martin. <laughs> I want to ask you, do you get a little irked when somebody says, this guy's always stoned? No, it's the truth. <laughs> Dean I had a great, great time with and uh, easy to get along with. He, he had a, uh, I, th I think it was a Pin Pin Farina, it was a, uh, kind of a, an obscure uh, Italian sports car. And he had a cassette player in it, which few of us had seen at the time. And he would record all of the lines on that uh, cassette, on cassettes except his. And his license plate was Drunky, and he, which he, he, he couldn't drink because he had terrible ulcers. But... Uh, he would drive to work uh, at Universal every day uh, from uh, Brentwood, where he lived, and he would put in that cassette and he'd cue himself with his lines. And by the time he got to work, he had them down cold. He, he was a lovely, lovely guy. He, he gave me a really generous tip, I have to tell you. Oh, Captain. Please sit down, Mrs. Quonset. I'm sorry to be a trouble to you, but I was on my way to New York to visit my poor daughter who's... Well, then why'd you get on this flight? Because according to the schedule, 
The next flight back from Rome is to New York, and it's your number five. And I thought that they'd want to get rid of me quickly, so they put me on that plane. Miss Quonset, if you help us, I promise you, you'll get to take trips to New York first class. Oh, thank you. How can I help? Helen was pretty aloof. I, I, I didn't, I, I, you know, I, I was better seen and not heard with Helen, but... Uh, but everybody else was really friendly, really nice to get along with. Uh, Van Heflin was terrific. Lloyd Nolan, I had a really good relationship with him and uh, with with all of the cast except for Helen. Helen, I don't know what what was going on with her. They need you? No, not yet. It won't be ready to drive out for a half hour. Ingram knows what to do in the meantime. Okay, so we know the kook is sitting at 23A. Not here. That's right. And what's your opinion? My opinion is they should get the hell back here as fast as they can. Well, if he should let it go, is there any chance that the plane could stand the explosion? And Bert was, was, uh, uh, didn't have a quick sense of humor, but he, he was kindly. But he, he used to say to me, kid, listen, don't talk, listen. <laughs> and and I, I spent a lot of time kind of protecting him from the crowds. So... Uh, and he had his friend Nick Cravat there, uh, and I think uh, Nick had a had a part in the picture. I'm not sure, but Nick went with him. Bert was incredibly loyal, and 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 to me, uh, a, a, a highly principled, principled and very nice guy, and on the inside, very friendly but a bit cautious, you know. Uh, but he was a, a. I had a really good relationship with him, and uh, with with all of the cast except for Helen. I'm too keyed up to sleep. What about some breakfast? Sounds like a good idea. Where should we go? Your apartment. Well, you've been bragging about your scrambled eggs. It's time I found out just how good they really are. Gene Seberg was... Um, I, 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 it's a difficult thing to explain, but because I was not uh, one of the hierarchy of... of of the production office, she would, uh, one time she invited me into her, uh, her dressing room. You know, they had these elaborate, uh, dressing rooms at Universal and she and her, her hairstylist, uh, tried to straighten my hair, which was really, really curly. I had a great time to, and, and it was like she wanted to talk, uh, to me all the time. And we never, we never talked about anything political. We always, uh, uh, talked about living in the Midwest, and you know, uh, and I had a really good time with Jean. She was probably the the closest relationship I had on that set. It's unlikely that any of the highly accomplished principal cast members took airport all that seriously, but it ended up boosting each of their careers and making serious dollars at the box office, which in turn led to more trips down the runway. First. There was Airport 1975. Charlton Heston. Damn! Great pressure's dropping. Karen Black. I'm scared. George Kennedy. My wife and son are up there in that airplane. I'm going to Salt Lake City. Gloria Swanson. To hell with the jewelry. Let's put my book in here. Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Susan Clark. Comedian Sid Caesar. Myrna Loy. Linda Blair. And award-winning singer Helen Reddy as Sister Ruth. Would you be more forgiving of your human imperfections if you realized your best friend was yourself? Then there was Airport 77. Starring Jack Lemmon. 
Brenda Vaccaro. Chambers flew us a couple of hundred miles off course. The search planes will never look for us here. There's no chance of We're on our own. Lee Grant. Christopher Lee. We're us. We're us. They're a bunch of strangers. That's your problem. You think everybody is us. Joseph Cotton. Olivia de Havilland. <laughs> Darren McGavin. Any increase in pressure will crush this fuselage like an empty beer can. George Kennedy and James Stewart as Philip Stevens. My daughter and my grandson are on that plane. And finally, the Concorde, Airport 79, which featured another stellar cast led by Susan Blakely, Robert Wagner, George Kennedy, Eddie Albert, B.B. Anderson, Charo, John Davidson, Martha Ray, Cicely Tyson, David Warner, Mercedes McCambridge, Sybil Danning, and Jimmy J.J. Walker. What's your favorite among the sequels? Or do any of them match up with the original, do you think? Um, well, they're, they're definitely different. My favorites, man, it's a tough call. My favorite's probably always been Airport 77, the, which is the one with Jacqueline where the plane goes underwater. Because, um, I, again, I watched that a lot when I was a kid, and I was just fascinated by that. How, like, wow, how does that happen? You know, and they're underwater. What are they going to do? And it's another stellar cast. Um, and Christopher Lee's in it, for heaven's sake. So that, for me, makes it a must-watch. And, um, you know, there's a heist in it, and uh, it's, you know, because each one of them, the airport movies, gets crazier as they go on. You know, at 75 is the classic with Charlton Heston and Karen Black, and a small plane hits the airliner, and the stewardess has to fly the plane. And there's some really good, fun stuff in that. And then 77, well, let's make this bigger, you know, we'll, we'll wreck the plane and it'll sink underwater and they have to rescue it. And then by the time you get to Airport 79, the Concorde, that movie is just off the rails. I mean, you've got George Kennedy, you know, uh, fly, flying the, the plane and shooting a, a, a flare out of the window to, uh, to ward off a heat-seeking missile. Um, you've got, you know him crashing it into the mountains and it, it's so nuts that it pretty much like it becomes a comedy uh, by that point yes we've said a lot about airport over the past 15 minutes but here's one more thing we can say about it and it's an anecdote that may surprise you it involves perhaps the most meaningful legacy the film leaves behind and it comes from kate buford the author of the wonderful biography, Burt Lancaster, An American Life. He needed the money. He agreed to do it, and he called it, what did he say? Um, biggest piece of junk ever made, or whatever, something like that. Um, it was not his kind of movie, but it was the most financially successful, and he got a cut of the profits. He, in his will, gave the residuals of airport to Union Settlement. So, so tell me, what was Union's settlement and what kind of role did it play in his life? Um, at the end of the 19th century, we had, this country had a huge influx of immigrants. That's when the Statue of Liberty goes up in New York Harbor, particularly Italians. And we'd already had the Irish, Jewish, German, Scandinavian, but then Italians came in the 1880s, 1890s. And big cities like New York, Chicago, Washington, Boston, were... Um, had this influx of immigrants who didn't speak English. The enlightened civic authorities felt that they needed to be um, given a hand up on to getting into American life, to 
give the skills that they needed. So what were founded around the eastern and midwestern Chicago mainly were these settlement houses. And settlement came from the word, the helpers, the people who worked there, were not do-gooders who then went home to the suburbs every night. They settled in the neighborhood, so they would learn the issues that were of primary concern to these new arrivals. And so Bert, his entire family, his siblings, and would go down a couple of blocks to Union Settlement House, and that's where they, mainly for Bert, it was sports, you know, not just acrobats, but he's a very good basketball player. Mm-hmm. And he also worked there. He helped um, coach and train some of the younger kids and as a result, he got a scholarship to NYU. But Union Settlement, all the settlement houses, and they still are, Union Settlement today is powerful lobbying force for the most vulnerable and newest among us in this society. So every year, a check for like twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 keeps rolling in the Union Settlement from airport, which still earns that amount of money. On the evening of July 3rd, 1954, Marilyn Shepard was bludgeoned to death in her bed. She was the wife of neurosurgeon Sam Shepard, who quickly became the prime suspect. Investigators do find signs of an attempted burglary, but they suspect that Shepard has committed the murder himself and staged a burglary as a cover-up. In December of that year, a jury found him guilty of his wife's murder. But in 1966, he was granted a retrial and was ultimately exonerated, thanks to the effective theatrics of his superstar lawyer, F. Lee Bailey. How do you explain his conviction in the first place? Uh, It was a result, according to Judge Weinman, and in my opinion, of mass hysteria generated by an overzealous press. Audiences today might recognize Shepard's story from the hit 60s TV show, The Fugitive, which later became an even more popular film starring Harrison Ford. Are you suggesting that I killed my wife? Are you saying that I crushed her skull and that I shot her? How dare you? But the case of Sam Shepard and Bailey's showcase role in it were initially headed to the big screen long before that Harrison Ford blockbuster. Filmmaker and author of Sidney J. Fury, Life and Films, Daniel Krimmer. So Effie Bailey had depend, uh, had uh, defended uh, Sam Shepard in uh, what was then a very famous. It was like the, it was like the equivalent of uh, of the O.J. Simpson trial back in the back in the fifties. Uh, and what's funny is that is that Effie Bailey would of course play a little role in uh, in the O.J. case years later. I want you to assume that perhaps at some time since 1985 or six, you addressed a member of the African American race as a. Is it possible that you have forgotten that act on your part? You know, Otto Preminger was known, I guess, for these kind of uh, publicity coups or maneuvers wherein he would cast uh, real life either political figures or mayors and uh, in, in acting roles. And then he would make headlines uh, with that, you know, with that uh, with that coup. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm thinking of he cast uh, Joseph Welch. In uh, Anatomy of a Murder, Welch is the guy who told uh, uh, Joe McCarthy uh, off at the at the Army McCarthy hearings, and that was the, that, that was the beginning of McCarthy's uh, downfall. You know, he also cast uh, Mayor Lindsay, the New York's Mayor Lindsay, in a later movie, 
uh, called Rosebud, and then he wanted to cast Martin Luther King uh, Jr. in uh, Advise and Consent, even though that, that didn't come to pass. So Preminger was always known for trying to make... So I think that uh, when, when Fury and uh, his, his partner at the time, Brad Dexter, his uh, uh, producing partner, um, you know, kind of in cooperation with, with uh, Bob Evans at Paramount, uh, they announced at one point that, that F. Lee Bailey would basically play himself in the movie uh, of, uh, like, a, it, it was originally slated as a more, more quote-unquote factual telling of the, of the Shepard murder case and trial. With Sidney J. Fury behind the director's chair, the filmmaker who had already helmed the acclaimed films The Leather Boys, The Ipcris File, and The Appaloosa, the project went through an evolution which saw Bailey taking the exit door and a new star entering the picture. Um, eventually, they wind up with uh, with uh, Barry Newman. You know, he was an, an unknown New York actor or a more, a more obscure New York actor uh, at the time. He was mostly known for his work on on stage. He had, he had done a few low-budgeted movies, but yeah, he was a mostly obscure actor that, uh, that uh, if memory serves, Sid had seen on on uh, on stage. Um, and then uh, they were, he was called in uh, for an audition, and he really uh, he was the best in, in, in Sid's eyes. And then it became the object of trying to convince Paramount that, uh, that it was okay to cast him because I think they wanted a name. Uh, and then, of course, Sid had just come from directing Brando in The Appaloosa and uh, Frank Sinatra in The, in the Naked Runner. Uh, so And he had had... Uh, euphemistically i'll say uphill battles uh with with uh working with them uh so it was you know sid was known for telling paramount about about barry newman is like i'd rather work with actors than uh than stars with barry newman in place the film began to take shape although the names had been changed much of the film's premise remained loyal to the general outline of the shepherd murder case an admired physician's wife is bludgeoned to death in their home, and he's the prime suspect. I guess I must have fallen asleep because the next thing I knew, I was awakened by someone calling my name. I think it was Wilma. It seemed to be coming from upstairs. It must have been much later because it was dark and there was nobody else around, so I went upstairs. When I got to the room, I, I saw this shape, form or something in the room near the bed. The doctor hires a big-shot, cocky lawyer to defend him. You're getting in a little over your head, aren't you, Patrick Kelly? Shelley. Shelley, Kelly, what the hell difference does it make? There's an initial conviction and an eventual acquittal. The case against Dr. Jack Harrison is dismissed, and this court adjourns. The surprise of the film, however, is that the murder courthouse plot takes a back seat to a study of its central character, the brash, Silky smooth defense attorney Tony Petricelli, played by Newman. Look, I've got the DA outside. Now, he's willing to accept a plea of manslaughter. Could mean a year inside or maybe nothing if we were contemporary insanity. So you think I killed her? I didn't say that. And why the offer? Because I'm obliged to inform you of it. And you think I should take it? It's a pretty good offer. If I did it. If you did it. Did I? Look, Jack, 
I don't keep cats and dogs in the house because they eat too much. Little children bore the pants off me. When I go to a ball game, I root for the visitors. I never send a Christmas card. I don't cry at weddings and funerals, and I cheated my wife if I had the time. Okay, okay, I get the picture of your one solid block of ice. With one soft spot. You're innocent until someone proves to me that you're guilty. For, for an actor of, of Barry's caliber at that point, uh, it was you know a definite triumph to uh, score such a part, I think. Very, very character-driven film. The character of Tony Petrocelli is both an irresistible charmer and a slithery snake. His slick theatrics in the courtroom might find more suitability in a big city, but instead he chooses to practice in the Deep South, foregoing a high-priced luxury car for a beaten-up camper. His fish-out-of-water status makes him instantly appealing, but he also provokes a sense of conflict in the audience. In spite of his sturdy looks, good humor, and common man touches, he's morally bankrupt. Does it fall in line with the with the other kinds of characters and themes that uh, that Sydney was uh, preoccupied with? Well, well, this is a shift because uh, the, you know the first part of his career, um, what really marked all all of his early films most profoundly, every every film up until The Lawyer, is about kind of these wounded males or these kind of like strange. I mean, you have Harry Palmer and Ed Crisfile cooking the meal for the woman. He wears glasses. He, you know, the uh, the woman kind of in the one scene in Ipcris file takes his glasses off, so she kind of is making the moves. You're very professional. Yeah, so are you. It's, it's these kind of like uh, emasculated, you know, male uh, specimens. I mean, you have Brando, you know, basically in, in the Appaloosa. He's really uh, cut down to size. I mean, he, he even loses the arm wrestling match between uh, himself and John Saxon with the with the Scorpions, which I'm shocked, by the way, that someone like Tarantino hasn't come along to, to pilfer that. You are very smart, senor. And you are very impolite. Unless it is the custom to try to make a fool of strangers in this little place. Frank Sinatra uh, also, he's just, you know, um, you, you see him barfing uh at one point in the movie which is like you didn't see you didn't see old blue eyes you know to an old blue eyes movie to see him barf uh so like all throughout like you had these kind of uh, emasculated or wounded males and uh, uh and then you arrive at the lawyer uh, which is a really a um a shift in that uh you have you know i think a very almost macho uh, uh specimen who uh you know is fighting on behalf of uh, of a client like uh, like he's fighting in a in a in a boxing match. It's, it's, so the the lawyer really marked a kind of a much more of a shift in uh, in the types of male characters that uh, that Sydney was personifying and bringing to the screen. Before I adjourn this court, bothers the hell out of you, doesn't it? What does? Express sincere appreciation. That there's one thing you're never going to know. <laughs> to be honest with you, Jack. I really don't give a damn. In retrospect, one can see how the lawyer fit right into the conception of the anti-heroic male that dominated cinema screens at that time. It's also, at its heart, a film about winning and losing, and what both bring out in a man's character. One of the great stars of the time, Robert Redford, 
was also preoccupied with exploring the themes of what it meant to be a winner. So it's no stretch that the same theme took a front seat in his collaboration with Sidney J. Fury, which was also released in 1970. Little Foss and Big Halsey. The lawyer failed to make much of a ripple when it was released in theaters on March 10th of that year. But watching it today, you can clearly recognize a character that television has been cannibalizing for decades. The good-looking attorney with an even better-looking girlfriend, and a flair for pulling off any outrageous acts of showmanship that can set his clients free. It's no wonder, then, that audiences would not see the last of Petrocelli. Barry Newman returned to the character for the NBC legal drama Petrocelli, which aired for two seasons between 74 and 76. on a hot tin roof, Brick, played by Paul Newman, wallows in despair and an unending well of alcohol. Once a star athlete, he is now entombed in an unfulfilling marriage with Maggie, played by Elizabeth Taylor, and stands in mourning for Skipper, an old friend he clearly harbors strong feelings for. The nature of those feelings remains largely unspoken, leaving audiences to ask, why the hell won't Paul Newman sleep with Elizabeth Taylor? The subtext, of course, is that Brick is a homosexual, and his affections for Skipper were never afforded an opportunity to manifest. But the movie, made in the golden sheen of 1950s Hollywood melodrama, could not afford to make these connections explicit. Tennessee Williams' Pulitzer Prize-winning work was not the only byproduct of this censorship. The quest to portray open and honest homosexual desire had long remained elusive, both on stage and screen. That is, until the boys in the band. Professor of Cinema Studies at City University of New York Graduate Center, David Gerstner. Boys in the Band in some ways becomes this um, maybe grand out moment um, for the, the representation of you know a gay male figure. But with that said... Um, you know, clearly we had the kind of uh, the repressed um, homosexual or the 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 homosexual that was in, uh, ambivalent and so forth. So you have movies like um, Dirk Bogart and The Victim, where it's kind of clear that he's being blackmailed, or where the questions raised in movies like Teen Sympathy, uh, The Children's Hour. Um, you know, there, there's any number of these films. And of course, you go back to the 20s and you've got, you know, Billy Haynes um, playing the big old queer character. These these sensual relationships that Nazimova would have with women on the screen. So you've got this invitation um, to homosexuality, to homosexual desire on the screen um, that um, is there for you know people in the know. Um, but what happens with boys, I think, is that. I think that the gay 
liberation movement is is becoming a bit louder. People are hearing about it. That you know, it's it's a it's a real big deal that that film happens when it happens. The seeds of The Boys in the Band began with a piece by critic Stanley Kaufman, which appeared in the New York Times on January 23, 1966. The principal complaint against homosexual dramatists is well known. Because three of the most successful American playwrights of the last 20 years are reputed homosexuals, and their plays often treat of women in marriage. Therefore, it is said that post-war American drama presents a badly distorted picture of American women, marriage, and society in general. The fact is that the homosexual dramatist is not to blame in this matter. If he writes of marriage or other relationships about which he knows or cares little, it is because he has no choice but to masquerade. In society, the homosexual's life must be discreetly concealed. As material for drama, that life must be even more intensely concealed. If he is to write of his experience, he must invent a two-sex version of the one-sex experience that he really knows. Associate Professor of English at Bridgewater State University, and the editor of The Boys in the Band, Flashpoints of Cinema, History, and Queer Politics, Matt Bell. You know, clearly for Kaufman, uh, a New York critic, you know, he was aware of the sort of ambient homosexuality around him. Um, so there was this kind of critical conversation taking place, but also a sense of like a, a vacuum of representation. That Kaufman piece served as the fuel for Mark Crowley's play, The Boys in the Band. Crowley was an openly gay writer who worked in television before becoming an assistant to Natalie Wood. With Wood's encouragement, he crafted a play that was free to be about what it was really about. The setting is a New York City apartment during a birthday party, and it's populated by nine distinct characters who each represent their own stage of denial, acceptance, and insecurity over their sexual identity. Over the course of the evening, the protective walls crumble, and an element of raw confession begins to creep in. First, there's the host of the party, a 30-year-old Roman Catholic named Michael. Faggots are worse than women about their age. They think their lives are over at 30. Then there's Michael's boyfriend, Donald, a man who strives for a sense of normalcy and engages in frequent psychoanalysis. Works late Saturdays and takes Mondays off. What is he, a psychiatrist or a hairdresser? Well, actually, he's both. He shrinks my head and then calms me out. There's Bernard, the only black man in the group, whose first love was a white boy whose family employed his mother as a maid. Please, spare us the sight of your sagging tits. Emery is the most flamboyant of the bunch, an interior decorator who swings from camp to pathos during the course of the play. Oh my God, he's after me again! Hank is a school teacher who has left his straight family life. For a long time, I either labeled it something else or denied it completely. Larry is Hank's boyfriend. He cares for Hank, but cannot maintain a monogamous relationship. If I'm not thought of as a happy homewrecker, I'm an impossible son of a bitch to live with. Harold is the birthday boy, an acerbic character who feels that his advancing age is putting a damper on his ability to fulfill his desires. 
What I am, Michael, is a 32-year-old, ugly, pockmarked Jew fairy. Cowboy is a young, dim gigolo, and Harold's present for the evening. A happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Harold, happy birthday to you. Finally, there's Alan, a math teacher from out of state, who claims to enjoy a soothing straight life with his wife and children. But he clearly has a secret he's desperate to get off his chest. I, uh... I really feel terrible about barging in on you fellas this way. The play opened in 1968 and quickly became an off-Broadway sensation, running for two years and a thousand performances. When it came time to put together the film version, Crowley and executive producer Dominic Dunn retained their stellar stage cast and looked to director William Friedkin, the young up-and-coming filmmaker who had previously worked to adapt Harold Pinter's play, The Birthday Party, to the screen. He sets it in one location, so he reproduces the feeling of the Broadway stage. It very much feels like a set. Associate Professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Ramsey Fawaz. The, like, the upstairs and the downstairs and the patio, right, are the only three places that we're in. And it often feels quite claustrophobic, like when there's in the room downstairs, um, it feels very cramped. And when you go upstairs, it's incredibly intimate. Um, and and it, you can tell when you look at the stairs, it looks like it's like a, almost like barely a three-dimensional stage, like on, uh, uh, on a set, right? What I think is really smart about this reproduction of the Broadway film is that it allows him to use the camera to reproduce the feeling of being in this deeply intimate setting among gay men in a social scene like this one. So one of the things he does is he uses a lot of shot reverse shots mm. when they're having their argument in the second half of the movie. But he also, like, so what's happening is that you feel like you're in the circle. So he reproduces the feeling of what it is like to be in that kind of so-called consciousness-raising circle because people will be arguing and he will put you in the position of Michael and then you'll be in the position of Emery and then you'll be in the position of Michael again. And so you, you feel as though you are among the men. Another um, example of this, where he doesn't use shot reverse shots, he will do something really extraordinary, which is that two of the people will be arguing about something. And what will happen is you'll see, let's say, Michael yelling at Alan but Alan and Michael will be in the same shot in an unusual way. So the camera will be looking at Michael and there's a mirror behind him and the mirror will have Alan's face in it. Mm. So you feel like you are an extra, like 10th member of the group watching Michael and you can see Alan in the reflection. So you're viewing all of the statements being made, but also the people who are being held to account. The statements that were being made proved controversial and divisive, particularly among the population the film sought out to authentically represent. You know, you're, you're seeing gay characters, but, um, but they're, not, they're not sanctified, which I think caused some, some disturbance when the play and the movie came out because you see them kind of foibles, in some cases self-loathing and, and all. Mm. Well, I, I think that that's been the, you know, the, the, the crux around um, Boys in the Band is a text because it is such a 
touchstone, but it's also a touchstone because it, it, it's allowed for so many different um, uh, revisions in terms of how it's looked at, right? It, it literally transforms um, uh, its, its interpretations as the historical period moves on. You know, you, when it comes out, you know, you've got the, the gay activists who are like, you know, no more self-loathing, you know, um, enough of these um, characters that, you know, are suicidal, this, that, the other thing. You know, you can start to look at them, these characters, and you think, you know, they're not really self-loathing. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of speaking. It's a way of, you know, existing in a, in a, in a world that was so homophobic that was so um what just uh, cruel um to, to to gay men that you you enter this space you know you're brought into this space that's theirs and yeah they may be sad and they're going to be you know um kind of nasty queens and and so forth but you know gay men kind of still are some ways you know we, it's, it's kind of a fun thing it's um uh it, it's, it's very complicated what we see in the boys in the band, you know, um, and that's what we're discovering now. I think that that's what is happening um, yet still to this day. You know, people from my generation, you know, in their 50s still see it as a self-loathing, mm. uh, negative portrayal um, of, of gay characters. You know, I think it's more complicated. If you are an oppressed minority in this country... You do, you, there is no possible way that you can develop and emerge as a human without some level of self-loathing. You are trained by this culture to despise yourself and people like you. Mm. And it takes an extraordinary amount of political and social consciousness to shed that self-loathing. I mean, this is what, you know, these famous slogans like black is beautiful and gay is good that came out of these social movements um, were trying to do. They were trying to create a consciousness of elevating blackness to the space of the beautiful, of elevating gayness to the space of the good. And I think um, the boys in the band, it was honest in its portrayal of the fact that it's not like gay men were going to overnight wake up and stop hating themselves. The movie is so honest in many ways about the fact that gay men who are out and living a truly kind of um, exploratory and inventive, erotic and social life also have moments of deep, deep self-hatred, um, confusion, sadness, depression. I think the movie was so honest about the negative emotions that come with being treated like garbage. And I think it has a reputation for showing self-loathing or shame, but it also includes other things. I, mean, I think that it's such a um, it's such a complex representation that includes, you know profound kinds of affection and defiance and pride uh, and joy. Um, the, the, you know, the, the sort of emotional high point of the film is that um, the kick line, uh, the, the, the line dance that they do to the Martha and the Vandella song called Heat Wave. Um, so much that follows in the film after that kind of mid that point midway through the film so much of the follows is negative and awful and self-loathing and painful to watch um but there's also the possibility of something much more exuberant in that moment um and i and i think you know some people walk away from the film certainly in, in 1970s just feeling like it's just kind of like 
you know, bathed in self-loathing. And, you know, I, I would want to point out the things about it that are more complex than that. Do you find that because the, the piece is, follows uh, eight or nine uh, characters, I mean, it's, a, it's a, yeah. a wealth of characters. Do you find that each of them kind of epitomize a different aspect of the, the gay experience of that time? So I think one of the criticisms that's been lobbied at the movie is that all of the characters represent uh, stereotypes, right? But the, the problem with that critique is every gay man watches the movie and recognizes somebody in it. Even if they don't fit the type exactly, we know those people. Like there's a way in which you look at it and you see parts of yourself and you see parts of other people. And so the film, in a sense, is also honest about how the collision of an emergent gay male culture with the dominant norms of American heterosexual culture produces these weird types of people who fit into these different niches. So the figure of Emery is really, really interesting in this, in this regard. Mm, they love to meet him or her. I have a special problem with pronouns. How many S's are there in the word pronoun? How'd you like to kiss my ass? That's got two or more S's in it. How'd you like to blow me? Somehow your wife got locked jaw. On the one hand, it's very easy to perceive him as this horrible stereotype of the highly effeminate gay man. But I recognize that character. Like, I have often felt like that character. I've also known lots of people who feel like that character. And so part of it is this weird combination of a character who is um, handsome but does not fit uh, the, the, the beauty heart. He's, like, not in the beauty hierarchy, right? He has a high voice. He's not muscular. He's not, like, traditionally masculine. And so one of the ways in which he responds to that is by building an extraordinarily bombastic, big, kind of brazen uh, form of effeminacy that is a kind of fabulous, right? It's like a fabulous refusal of that order. And surprisingly, among all the men, he actually has more sex than almost all of them. And, he, and, and the other men in the group have such complicated um, relationships to him. They love him dearly, like a sister, and they also envy the fact that he is so out. I went shopping today and bought all kinds of goodies. Sandalwood soap. Oh, I feel better already. Your very own toothbrush, because I'm sick to death of you using mine. How do you think I feel? You've had worse things in your mouth. The major character, Michael, in whose, in whose apartment the whole um, play and film is set, um, you know, it was really based on Crowley himself. Crowley had struggled with alcohol um, and had had the kinds of experiences that are described in the film, um, you know, just uh, experiences of self-loathing and kind of wishing things were otherwise and and sort of being mean-spirited toward his friends. My God! <laughs> Michael! Michael! Don't, don't leave me! Please don't leave me! It, it, like, it's clear that they're thinking about, uh, that, that Crowley is thinking about a range of uh, types of person, from the most closeted to the most out, from the most masculine to the most feminine, um, you know, there are different religious and racial types represented in the film. I think that, that there's something so powerful about the fact that the film presents these social types and then it sets them to this really interesting interaction with one another. So they never solidify into stereotypes. 
because they're rounded, rich, complicated people who are talking. In the ever-evolving landscape of queer politics and representation, one could argue the merits of the boys in the band ad nauseum. That's one of the film's strengths, and what has made it endure over the past five decades. When the film opened on February 17, 1970, nine months after the galvanizing Stonewall riots that shook New York City and the gay liberation movement, it was met with generally favorable reviews. But its impact did not immediately absorb into the film culture of the time, at least in terms of inspiring other works of similar explicitness in its immediate wake. But without a doubt, the boys in the band started a conversation that continues to this day. We still experience horrific oppression. There is still incredible negativity towards us, and we feel negativity about ourselves and about the world. We should be able to articulate depression, frustration, anxiety, anger, rage, just as much as like joy, pleasure, love, ebullion. And I think the film is willing to tackle all of those feelings, and we have so much to learn from that. Oh, Michael, thanks for the laughs. Call you tomorrow. As we discuss many of the films of this bygone era, you might think to yourself that they don't make them like they used to. That sentiment can also apply to the they who used to make them. The history of cinema is replete with larger-than-life filmmakers whose authenticity of character, personal demons, and bad boy behaviors were etched into every frame of their work. Of the directors who fit this bill, Sam Peckinpah was the biggest, brashest, and baddest of them all. His personality inhabits every frame of the film, and I happen to believe that the really great artists usually are very conflicted, very tormented, uh, and they behave badly a lot. Writer, producer, and author of If They Move, Kill Em, The Life and Times of Sam Peckinpah, David Weddle. Orson Welles, one of the greatest filmmakers ever, uh, had many demons. And mis- I, pick pick any artist from Picasso to Van Gogh to uh, you know uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald or Hemingway or you know they are conflicted, troubled individuals. Often, I think like why, why that makes them great artists in part is they are trying to work out mm. very. Uh, intense internal conflicts through their art. And and that makes the art incredibly alive. Peckinpah started his career in the 50s as a writer and director of popular television series like The Rifleman, The Westerner, and Gunsmoke. His early film efforts like Major Dundee and Ride the High Country might have introduced some of his obvious gifts to audiences, but it was his explosively violent 1969 effort, The Wild Bunch, that sent his popularity into the stratosphere. Driven to the border by the irresistible thrust of civilization were the remnants of the breed that had made the West wild. 
If they move, kill them. As scandalizing as it was admired, the Wild Bunch adopted the trimmers set in place by Bonnie and Clyde just two years earlier and crafted them into a full-fledged seismic event. It also solidified Peckinpah's preoccupations as a filmmaker, which he started to develop at a young age, before he ever thought of picking up a film camera. His family, on both his mother's side, the, the churches, and his father's side, the Peckinpahs, they were pioneer stock. They actually crossed the plains, fought Indians. His, his grandfather, Charlie Peckinpah, claimed a mountain uh, just south of Yosemite that was called Peckinpah Mountain, and he had a lumber operation going there. His maternal uh, grandfather, Denver Church, who became a congressman and a Superior Court judge, also went up to the Yukon to, to prospect for gold. He had a cattle ranch. He was a hunter. You know, That's his family. And he saw them, he grew up as all that world was beginning to fade away. And even within his family, it was changing. So all of his films are about the death of the West, because he saw that happen. And as a little kid sitting around campfires and listening to the old-timers talk and tell tales of the West, particularly a young boy, you know, the Wild West was a masculine paradise. It was where where men roamed free, you know, following their impulses, uh, uh, having incredible adventures, and that, that, that romanticism was very alive in him. And then as he grew older and became educated and smarter and saw more of the world, he saw a lot of the flaws in that mythology. Released in the U.S. in June of 69, The Wild Bunch played on this mythology to startling, gut-punching effect, as it followed a group of outlaws whose way of life and personal codes were quickly becoming obsolete in the midst of a changing Western landscape. The movie might have dealt with antiquated traditions, but its stylistic flourishes felt refreshingly new. I mean, he was, a, he was a, I think, a pretty acute student of the moment. Author of Savage Cinema, Sam Peckinpah, and the Rise of Ultraviolent Movies, Stephen Prince. He became a sort of proselytizer for the need to reform movies in terms of screen violence. He thought that would really be a kind of way to bring cinema into the moment and also in a progressive fashion to kind of correct some of the... Um, uh, kind of misleading ideas about violence that sanitized movies in the past had created, uh, at least according to his line of thinking. Um, clearly, The Wild Bunch is a, is a Western, first of all. It's a, it's a genre picture. But um, in his hands, it became much more than that. It became a commentary on the times. By the time The Wild Bunch was blasting its way onto cinema screens, Peckinpah was already in production on his next project, The Ballad of Cable Hogue, and audiences who might have felt primed for another balletic bloodbath were in for quite a surprise. Cable Hogue was done exactly because it was um, uh, 180 degrees away from uh, the Wild Bunch. Author of Peckinpah, A Portrait in Montage, Garner Simmons. And... um, it's a love story, you know, and it's also an allegory of the American dream. Cable Hogue, a rugged breed, the pioneer. 
pitted against the relentless wilderness, face to face with irresistible forces of nature, battling the overwhelming odds alone with little more than naked courage and his bare hands, resting from the heartless wasteland, <laughs> a place to call his own. This is the pioneer. This is the man whose faith, stamina, and risk capital conquered the frontier and carved the Wild West into a nation. This is the Ballad of Cable Ho. Welcome to Cable Springs. It really is um, is a wonderful story because it is one which has a um, a real connection to to what it is to to dream in America. It was the story of a a, a Western entrepreneur, a guy who stumbles upon a water hole in the desert where nobody thought it, water was, and opens a stage stop and flourishes for a time. Has a a little kingdom of his own until gasoline comes along and the automobile comes along and the stage line dies and he's no longer relevant and he passes into history like so many Wild West entrepreneurs like Sam's own grandfather, Charlie Peckinpah, and and like uh, Moses Church, who was his great uncle, a guy who brought irrigation to the San Joaquin Valley and transform the area around Fresno by bringing water to where it wasn't, to a desert. Mm. So all that spoke to Sam, and it was a chance for him to poetically tell an allegory about that. Ain't had no water since yesterday, Lord. Getting a little thirsty. Just thought I'd mention it. Amen. To bring life to this allegory, Peckinpah cast one of our greatest actors, Jason Robards, as the title character. Robards delivers a beautifully nuanced performance in the film, vacillating between grizzled and gruff and gentle and heart-wrenching. If I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the, the project was driven to his attention by Warren Oates, uh, and yet he cast Robards in the lead and i'm wondering uh i mean robards is epic in this movie uh i'm i'm wondering uh, your your impressions of, of of robards and his his collaboration with peck and Paul. i love war notes as most of us peck and Paul heads do you know war notes is an amazing actor and uh, uh in almost anything he appears in whether it's peck and Paul or not uh but he doesn't have the same kind of warmth uh, and, and that makes your heart go out. The more you enjoy watching the 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 epic dysfunction that and craziness and neuroses that that Oates can bring to the screen. Uh, Robards can do that, but he also brings uh, a tremendous warmth, like the moment where. Uh, the moment where he's trying to get a loan and the banker tells him, do you have any says, do you have any collateral? Do you have any of this? Do you have any of that? And then Robart says, what about me? Ain't I worth something? And the camera moves in. That is such mm-hmm. a powerful moment. And it's, it's done understated, but with such power by Robards. What do you want? Grub steak. 35 of them green ones. Have you any collateral? Do you own anything? Well, sure. I told you. There. That is two dollars and a half. 
Well, I'm worth something, ain't I? What's your name? Cable Hogue. Cable, with an L-E. Mr. Hogue, Mr. Cable Hogue, is $35 all you want? A hundred get you started? The other major character in the film is perhaps the most surprising element coming from the Picasso of violence behind the Wild Bunch. The character's name is Hildy, a prostitute who falls for Cable and pursues a love affair with him. Played by Stella Stevens in what is arguably her best performance, Hildy brings out a softer side of Cable. The film even features a loving duet between the two, titled Butterfly Mornings and Wildflower Afternoons. Butterfly Mornings, Butterfly Mornings, Butterfly Mornings and Wildflower Afternoons. Catch me there. The portrayal of women in the Western genre uh, has always been kind of a, a, a spotty one. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm I'm wondering how how you feel about that that central love story between Robards and, and Stella Stevens and how it plays out in Cable Hogue. It really is a beautiful love story, and it, it's one that I mean it it uh, it's a contradiction in its own way because ultimately she's a prostitute, but he overlooks all that. Cable does because he sees in her someone who he really finds independent and um beautiful and he is you know he, he he's really brought out of himself by her um i find um cable hogue is a much of course a much sweeter film it's not audacious like the wild bunch is and it's a film where you see a different side of him um although i think i think in that film too he's he shows us that he's always been a much more acute director at showing the failure of relationships than he has at showing their success. I just have a problem, and, and, I, and a lot of people have taken me to task for this. I have a problem, not with Stella Stevens. I think it is one of her best performances. Nutty Professor, by the way, is another great performance. But uh, she, uh, I, I do think she's great in it. It's really Peckinpah's problem to me. I don't find that the relationship is really fully developed. I feel like the the love songs that they sing, Butterfly Mornings, mm. even it's a beautiful song, and the montages of them falling in love, there's a, to me, a hollowness to it. And I think, actually, it illuminates a problem with Peckinpah. Why was he never able to sustain a romantic relationship? Because he can't, he, he has trouble seeing Unless they're older women, Ida Lupino uh, in Junior Bonner, um, Olivia de Havilland in New Wine are incredibly complex, interesting female characters, but they're not sexual creatures because they're older women in those dramas. 
and somehow that allows Peck and Paw to discover their humanity. When they're sexual creatures, it gets mixed up with Peck and Paw's Madonna horror complex and his inability, I think, to really, you know, um, see women as fully dimensional human beings when they're in when they're in a sexual romantic role. He's great at showing the failure of love, of of a relationship where the two people betray or fail each other in Noonwine or Straw Dogs or Pike Bishop in the Wild Bunch. Nobody does the sort of failure of love. Few people do that, that tragedy with as much sincere, deep agony as Peckinpah. Mm. What he can't do as well is convince you that these two people really have an amazing love. The best scene for me in terms of the relationship in Cable Hogue is where he, where, where Jason Robards, uh, gets jealous of the preacher, Josh. And then gets nasty with Hildy at dinner and uh, as much calls her a whore, which he really didn't do before that. and didn't judge her for that before that moment. That's a moment like right out of Sam Peckinpah's life. And it has, that's a, that m- moment has a lot of truth. You know, the Hildy character is a kind of male archetype of what, you know, a woman might be, right? The, the whore with a heart of gold. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a male archetype. Uh, so that's a that's a that's a limitation on that movie. Um, uh, but the performances by Stella Stevens and Jason Robards are very heartfelt, and so you know it kind of breathes life into that that old archetype. I'll be leaving tomorrow. Tomorrow? You know, I was only going to stay one day, maybe two. It's been over three weeks already. Can't be. Has though. I uh, got used to your cooking and all. I, I admit I thought a lot about staying. You treated me like a real lady, ho. You were good to me. Not good enough. <laughs> Maybe too good, I don't know. I just came in. The production of The Ballad of Cable Hogue was problematic, to say the least. Some of the issues, such as weather delays, were out of the filmmaker's control, but most were self-inflicted. Peckinpah was among the most self-destructive of film directors, and his antics during the filming of Cable Hogue did little to endear him to Warner Brothers. From his late-night boozing to the plethora of prostitutes on the set, to his firing of over three dozen crew members during the course of the shoot. The film went significantly over budget, so much so that the studio felt they couldn't possibly recoup their costs and turn a profit on the picture. It was a very problematic shoot because they had, uh, it rained uh, quite a, it might have rained two weeks, and it was primarily an outdoor movie yeah. so uh so that caused a lot of delays and peck and paw got very frustrated and turned you know brought out all his worst impulses which is the firing of people taking it out on people unnecessarily um and then and then there's just the personal issues of sam which is his alcoholism which 
on the Wild Bunch when he got that job. It was among his most disciplined uh, performances as a director. He did not drink. He didn't even drink at night on the Wild Bunch during shooting days. On the weekends, he would get hammered when they weren't shooting. But otherwise, he didn't drink. And it shows. Hmm. Cable Hogue, he did not drink during the day while they were sh- I, I did a lot of work on trying to chart the progression of his alcoholism because it was important. Cable Hogue, he didn't drink during the day shooting. But every night, he now slipped to getting drunk you know, blasted, drunk every night, and then would, you know, be hung over in the morning, uh, but still capable of doing great work, obviously. But, uh, so that, that slippage also contributed to problems on the movie and its overages. If The Ballad of Cable Hogue had been a hit, it's likely that the studio would have excused Peckinpah's onset behavior as just part of the package. But when it opened on March 18th of that year, and failed to bring in audiences, the studio's dismissal of the film set Peckinpah's career in jeopardy, and it likely restrained him from pursuing a slew of tantalizing projects. That worked against him in the fact that the people were expecting the Wild Bunch, and when they got Cable Hogan, didn't know what to do with it. Uh, Warner Brothers buried it, basically, um, mainly because it was shown to the distributors early, and it didn't have a it didn't have a music track. It didn't. It was a, a rough cut of but but another forty minutes longer than it ultimately was. And they thought, ah, this this is terrible. Let's get rid of this. And it really hurt him because he really felt that that Cable Hogue was one of the strongest films he'd ever made. Cable Hogue's a it's set, it's very unfortunate that it did it was not successful at the box office. That it was because if it had been a hit. Sam Peckinpah might have had a much different career, and we might not be talking about his, why did he make, you know, talking about Cable Hogue like it's some anomaly. He had many projects he wanted to do when he came to Warner Brothers. One of the great missed opportunities for me, I personally believe, is he very much wanted to do Ken Kesey's Sometimes a Great Notion, because he came from a lumberjack family, and that's a complex family drama, even a metaphysical drama, and I wish he had gotten the opportunity to do that. Joan Didion oh, wanted yeah. him to direct, met with him to talk about Play It As It Lays, and wanted him to direct it. Out of all the directors in Hollywood, she felt he understood the, the book, and Sam wanted to do it. No studio would let him do it, because after The Wild Bunch, and it's an amazing success, that's the way Hollywood sees you. Wasn't James, wasn't James Dickey, didn't he want him to do Deliverance? He did. It was, Sam was their first choice. I talked to Dick. Dickie came to, to lecture at Northwestern. I went to the lecture and afterwards I talked with him. And he said basically um, they, kept, they, they wanted to do, uh, he wanted to do, uh, want Peckinpah to do Deliverance. And he met with Peckinpah. And what Peckinpah apparently said to him was, you know, Dickie said, well, how, how do you see this being adapted? And, and Peckinpah said, yeah, I want to. I'm going to take this, uh, take your book, and I'm going to cram it through the camera a page at a time. <laughs> and uh, that is really, you know, Sam, it would have been a different film if Sam made it. Sam was very attracted to the material. It was, you know, it's about a, a lot of contradictions within the people who are the, who who are there, and about a, a different kind of America. Yeah. Ricky was is an, was an extraordinarily talented man. 
but when Sam wasn't available, they had to go. They, they wanted to get the film made, and so they went to John Borman instead. Uh, I, I, I think Borman did a good job. I don't, you know, I don't disagree with that, but I think that you know the casting would have been totally different. Um, the whole look of it would have been totally different. Mm. Yeah, that that is something to ponder. What a Peckinpah deliverance would have been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Would, no wow. Following the dismal box office returns for Cable Hogue, Peckinpah succumbed to the pressures of typecasting by returning to the themes of extreme violence with perhaps his most controversial film, 1971's Straw Dogs. He would make other great films in the immediate years that followed, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, Cross of Iron, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, but as his alcoholism morphed into cocaine abuse, Peckinpah's demons no longer informed his works, but overshadowed them. He died in 1984, at the age of 59. He lived himself to death. The truth mm-hmm. is, you know, he died at 59. Um, he looked 80. But he looked like, you know, he basically had, had poured 80 years through that 59 years. It took its toll. Yeah. But he captured the, the things which were were most important to him on film Mm. and that's the legacy left behind in the best years of our lives director william wyler's classic 1946 drama about the toil suffered by returning servicemen after the second world war harold russell memorably portrayed the role of homer parrish a veteran who had lost both of his hands during the war. This is when I know I'm helpless. My hands are down there on the bed. I can't put them on again without calling to somebody for help. I can't smoke a cigarette or read a book. If that door should blow shut, I can't open it and get out of this room. I was dependent as a baby that doesn't know how to get anything except cry for it. Harold was not a professional actor. He was an army instructor who had, in fact, lost both of his hands in a training accident. So powerfully moving was his performance in the film that when Oscar night rolled around the following year, he was presented a special award for bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans. Oh, and he also won the Best Supporting Actor prize that night, making him the only actor to win two Oscars for the same performance. I share this anecdote to illustrate two points. Weiler was the most honored film director in Oscar history. Three Best Picture wins, three Best Director wins out of 12 nominations. 36 of the performances he directed were nominated, and 14 took home the prize. The Harold Russell anecdote also speaks to Weiler's commitment to realism and to mining the emotional truth on screen. That infallible truth detector proved especially uncomfortable for audiences with the release of his final film on March 18th of 1970, The Liberation of L.B. Jones. Liberation of L.B. Jones is much grittier, darker. It's a very dark film. It's a very bitter film. It includes really no signs of hope. It's a very uncomfortable film to watch. It certainly was back in 1970. Not only is the film itself uncompromising, but the things that it conjures and the emotions that it stirs in you 
are very, very tough to take. The film was based on a novel that had been released five years earlier, The Liberation of Lord Byron Jones, by an up-and-coming Southern writer named Jesse Hill Ford. He is a native-born Southerner, and yet his vision is not clouded. Professor of English at the University of West Alabama and author of Mysterious Mississippi, Alan Brown. The racial problems in the South were the thing that really, really troubled him. Uh, I think maybe writing for him was a kind of redemption that that you know he wasn't ashamed of being a southerner but but yet he knew that there was a lot of room for improvement and mm. he makes that statement elo- eloquently in uh liberation of of lb jones ford based the liberation of lord byron jones on a real life case of horrific racial injustice which took place in a southern town where he and his family were living at the time Humboldt, Tennessee. Released in 1965, the book was nominated for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. It was a bestseller. It made him wealthy. It put him on the map. And in fact, I think most critics thought that this is an up-and-coming writer who's going to eventually be part of the pantheon of the Southern Renaissance, that he's going to be up there with Welty and Faulkner and it didn't happen. The book and the film tell the story of L.B. Jones, a wealthy and highly dignified black undertaker in a small southern town who wants to file for a divorce from his young sexpot wife, Emma, after he discovers she's been having an affair with a repulsively racist white cop. Tensions rise as Emma refuses to grant the divorce. She wants her perks and privileges to remain just as they are, and vows to challenge it in the courts. Will you get rid of your lawyer? Never happen. Then let me have the divorce. Why fight me? Well, maybe Emma likes things just the way they are. Then I must have it from you once and forever. Tell me no. Hell no! I'll see you in court. (laughs) Emma's decision to reject the divorce will make her indiscretions public, and therefore bring shame and scandal to the police department. To make the problem go away, the cuckolding cop mutilates and lynches LB. Now that, by God, says nigger revenge, plain as day. Couldn't say it no plainer did you hang a sign on him. The figures in the town who represent law and order, including the attorney who has vowed to serve LB's interests, go out of their way to keep justice from prevailing. Oh, nothing we do, any of us will bring LB back, is that right? Let the law lay it on me, otherwise I'll never sleep again. And have the case dragged in every newspaper in the country? If you don't lay it on me, I'll never get right, Mr. Over. Never. Well, what about your wife, Lonnie, and your, your little girls? Are they worth standing up for? Have you got guts enough to shelter them from ruin? He's a brave man, Omen. I know he's got the guts. Willie Joe, you killed a man in the line of duty. Is that so bad for a police officer doing your duty as you saw it? Ford drafted a screenplay for the filmed version of his book that was ultimately rejected. In his place, the studio brought in Sterling Siliphant for a rewrite. 
Siliphant had just picked up an Oscar for his screenplay to another high-profile film dealing with race relations in America. Well, you're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? Virgil, that's a funny name for a nigger boy that comes from Philadelphia. What did they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. It began, of course, within the heat of the night. Author of Sterling Siliphant, The Fingers of God, Nat Segaloff. He tracked both the anti-war movement and the... Uh, the, the, the peace and the civil rights movement from the very beginning. He was always trying to hire performers of color. He was always talking about race relations. And in Liberation of L.B. Jones, he really showed the dark side of it. Before the film could become a reality, it needed a director. And William Wyler was one of the most accomplished in the history of Hollywood. Around this time, however, the Oscar-winning director of Mrs. Miniver, Roman Holiday, Ben-Hur, and the previously mentioned The Best Years of Our Lives, was mulling over a different project. Author of William Wyler, The Life and Films of Hollywood's Most Celebrated Director, Gabriel Miller. He almost did uh, Patton. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, he was thinking about it and uh, planning it. Author of Making Patton, a classic war film's epic journey to the silver screen, Nicholas Sarantakis. They were going to film the film in, or do the shooting in Spain, and he didn't want to go to Europe because of his health. And then he had had some uh, experiences with uh, George C. Scott previously in which it didn't go well, and he didn't want to really direct Scott again. He refused to make it because he did not want to make a movie that glorified war. There was a kind of combination of factors. So he said, thanks, no thanks, I'm, I'm out. Author of A Talent for Trouble, the life of Hollywood's most celebrated director, William Wyler, Jan Herman. He had a middle-of-the-road reputation, a middle-of-the-road liberal reputation. Nevertheless, during World War II, when he was enlisted, when he enlisted, then he got himself a job, and he worked to work for Capra's uh, film documentary studio, and one of the films that Capra wanted him to make was a film about the black soldier. So he was going to go down south, and he did go down south to document how the black soldier was being treated in the army. And he was shocked to discover that uh, they were treated like not only second-class citizens, they were third-class citizens. The, the segregation was horrendous. He went with a black screenwriter who had to be housed in a different hotel from where he was. And he really, so he started to shoot film about that, and he decided he was going to expose this issue. And when he came back, he was shut down. It was clear he could not do the kind of film that he wanted to do. So he quit. When this film, Liberation of L.B. Jones, comes along about a subject of black and white in, in, the, in, in the segregated South as, as late as the 60s, it hit a nerve. This is a chance for him to address a subject that he had been uh, shut down on once upon a time. And so there was a theme there that really appealed to him. Weiler cast Roscoe Lee Brown as the title character. Lola Falana as his philandering wife, Emma, and Lee J. Cobb as L.B.'s attorney. I want this divorce. Now. You know the difficulty of a white man's named in open court. To hell with a white man. The impressive cast was rounded out by Yafet Kodo as L.B.'s friend, Mosby, 
Anthony Zerby as the murderous cop, Lee Majors as the nephew and new law partner to Lee J. Cobb's character, and Barbara Hershey as Majors' newlywed wife. I figured you might need me. Can I help? Are we handled it? But how? The way things always been handled here, quietly. Oh, when a man's been murdered. Though he felt a strong attachment to the screenplay, Sterling Siliphant was unable to be on set due to a previous commitment. Jesse Hill Ford lived nearby the filming locations, so he made himself available to Weiler in case screenplay tweaks were needed during the shoot. It's interesting that the original novel has a lot of hopeful things in it. Uh, it takes place in, in 1963 against the backdrop of the March on Washington. Uh, in, in the novel, Steve and his wife, play, who are in the movie played by Lee Majors and um, Barbara Hershey, uh, take a very active role uh, to intercede in Jones's case, even visiting him uh, in his home. Uh, there's an incident in the novel of a radical who comes into town uh, and who is jailed uh, for being a radical or just for the way he looks. And Steve, uh, the Lee Majors character, bails him out of jail. Uh, when Steve leaves his uncle's practice, he joins the NAACP. Uh, Mosby, um, uh, the Yafet Kodo character uh, in the novel, joins the Nation of Islam. And Emma Jones uh, becomes, obviously after her husband's death and inheriting the money that she inherits, becomes a benefactor of the Nation of Islam. None of this, incredibly, is included in the film. So the normal uh, signs of hope uh, that you would expect in a Hollywood movie um, isn't out there. I mean, it's unsparing, it's bitter, uh, the world view in the film is awful. You know, Sterling Siliphant, who wrote In the Heat of the Night and won an Oscar for it, you know, with a black man and a, and a white man becoming friends and showing all of this healing, left all of this out of, uh, of this movie. The film was shot in record time, especially for a movie by the notoriously meticulous Weiler, and was partially shot in the area in which the real events that inspired it had occurred. There were incidents of racial aggression during the filming, a fact that Weiler was not made aware of until after the shoot. During one particularly memorable encounter, a townsperson approached star Roscoe Lee Brown and remarked how well he spoke for a black man. Well, thank you, Brown replied. I was raised by a white maid. When audiences were confronted with the film upon release, they failed to receive it with the same measure of grace. In fact, they stayed away from it altogether. Even the movie poster art presented a confrontational provocation, a silhouette of L.B. on a hook, accompanied by the viciously ironic tagline, A Story of Southern Hospitality. I saw the film before it came out. I was fortunate to attend an exhibitor screening of it in Boston, so nobody had read any reviews, there was no reference. But it was a very uncomfortable screening, 
and the uh, the people watching it, the exhibitors, let's say they were not necessarily part of the civil rights movement in spirit. Okay, mm. and there was no remarking against the film, but it was clearly very tense in the room. You know, this was the first year of the first post civil rights movement decade. So for something like the liberation to come along, which is pretty despairing, it felt like people did not want to see that. It almost felt like, oh, please, let's not look back, even though it was a reality that we're still dealing with. That's what the film was. Yeah. Did do you get that sense, too, of the reaction to it? Well, I think you would be hard-pressed to name a more um, another American film uh, until very recently uh, that looks at race so unsparingly. Um, it's, uh, you know, and there are scenes in that movie that are, uh, that are incredible. Uh, you know, the two cops, uh, coming into the police station after they kill, uh, Jones and, you know, they walk up to, uh, the policeman played by Chill Wills at the front desk and, uh, and say, we killed us a, you know, using the N word. I mean, the N word is used in that movie almost as often as people say good morning or good afternoon. Um, uh, the scene where they bring that black person, another black person who just makes, you know, an entrance in the movie to arrest him and they ask him to show his teeth. I mean, that, that scene is just cringeworthy. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it makes you feel so uncomfortable. Uh, but Weiler's camera is unsparing. The dark tone of the film informed the fate of the book's author, Jesse Hill Ford. Having written about such a shameful chapter of his town's history, he faced constant threats from townspeople who felt blighted by his portrayal. This reaction was only amplified upon the release of the film. People just in Humboldt, Tennessee, just did not trust him. They didn't like him. Blacks and whites were angry. Later that year, in November of 1970, Feeling the weight and paranoia of repeated threats against he and his family, Ford observed an unfamiliar car parked on his property. He grabbed his rifle, stepped outside, and started firing. He killed the young man in the driver's seat, who was merely parking with a female companion. She managed to flee from the scene without physical harm. There are two heartbreaking ironies associated with this horrific event. One is the identity of that female companion, a 16-year-old girl named Allie Andrews, who was, coincidentally, the cousin of the real-life Emma, the philandering wife Ford had portrayed in The Liberation of Lord Byron Jones. The second irony involves Ford's eventual acquittal at trial. Essentially, he benefited from the same judicial prejudices that he had condemned so convincingly in his book. For the last time, are you going to call off the divorce, for God's sake? You know what you're forcing me to do? You by God know you're asking for it? You got a prayer, LB, you better by God pray. Only peace. Huh? What do you say? Amen. The themes explored in the liberation of LB Jones are as relevant today as they were 50 years ago. Weiler's film is practically begging to be rediscovered as it reflects the current world we live in 
with haunting accuracy. Near Lake Weir in north-central Florida sits an old two-story house. To the uninitiated, there appears to be nothing particularly special about the house, yet hundreds of people schedule appointments each year to explore its insides. For most, it's likely the closest they'll come to experiencing such a notorious and brutally violent piece of American lore. This is the house where Ma Barker, and her son Fred were shot down by the FBI on January 16th, 1935. Fred would run around to all the rooms. He would shoot out the windows. The FBI, at the time, the Department of Justice, were, uh, they shot approximately 500 shots at this house. And at Barker's, shooting out was 250 shots. The story of Ma Barker and her sons a family of thieves and murderers who traveled the country on a criminal rampage during the Depression, seemed to take on an almost mythic status right out of the gate. That was by design. I guess that, that, that phrase comes to mind about when, when the legend is more interesting than the facts print the legend. And I'm wondering where the legend started about Ma Barker and her children. Was it kind of spearheaded by Hoover? Actually, the... The phrase you use when the legend is more interesting than the facts, print the legend, perfectly oh. sums up how Ma's legend begins, because she is indeed more legend than fact. Author of Wanted Women, an American Obsession in the Reign of J. Edgar Hoover, Mary Elizabeth Strunk. So Ma Barker ends up being shot in a house that was rented to her and to two members of the Barker Carpus gang. Um, Ma ends up dying in that house with her her uh, son, Freddie. She ends up dying, but she wasn't actually known to be in the house at the time that the G-men who surrounded the house um, were engaged in gun battle <laughs> with its residents. And when she turned up dead inside, you know, a 63-year-old woman who had no official criminal record, this was a real problem <laughs> for a bureau that was otherwise you know, doing pretty well in terms of building its reputation and undertaking its new powers. So, Hoover and the Bureau in general had to do a lot of selling of the G-Man to make sure that the public trusted him, because it was always a him at this point, and that they were seen as blameless heroes. So the accidental shooting of Ma Barker, as she came to be known, um, would have been a big problem. And thus, Hoover wrote an article, or rather his ghostwriter, Courtney Riley, Riley Cooper, wrote an article for American Magazine some months after her death. And the title of this article about Ma Barker was called The Real Public Enemy Number One. And it was the first in a series about the G-Men and their activities. And it's interesting that they would choose to talk about her. <laughs> and it does seem, you know, back to your phrase, when the legend is more interesting, print the legend. This was the moment where really Courtney Riley Cooper and you know, in tandem with Hoover himself and the agents who were corresponding back and forth about this piece invented Ma. And they took real elements of her, her biography and then 
became pretty fantastical with other of the facts. <laughs> it's pretty much a certainty that Bob Barker at least had knowledge of her son's criminal enterprises, but it's more difficult to ascertain whether or not she was an active participant in these exploits. The movies that have been produced around this lore over the years, however, toss aside any notions of ambiguity. There were several uh, cinematic iterations of Mob Barker and her gang. How do you think these films use the legend for their own kind of purposes? And how did that fit into the, the framework of the thinking at the time? And and nodding because I think you're totally right. You know, the Mob Barker legend sticks. And when certain stories stick, you know, it's they're saying something about a kind of pocket of unease in our culture. Hmm. But they also, you know, the, the span of Mob Barker movies goes across multiple decades and you see certain different uh, concerns <laughs> um, or obsessions, you know, coming out in each. The first would be 1939's Queen of the Mob, which comes out of Paramount. And that movie is adapted directly from that American Magazine article, The Real Public Enemy Number One. We're packing. We're getting out of here right now. So long as we're working together, I'll give the orders. The original script called for Ma Webster to die under a Christmas tree <laughs> and to say, you win, Mr. G-Man, as she expires under the tree. <laughs> and the censors and I think test audiences just wouldn't have it. <laughs> so they reshot the scene. Instead, they put uh, the actress Blanche Yurko, kind of a you know, smallish woman, black dress, you know, white sort of lace uh, outline or at the neck, around the neckline of her dress. Instead, they put her in cuffs and they lead her away. Then, you know, it's not too big a leap from that film to a decade later to White Heat. Mm. James Cagney. I read somewhere that the the scriptwriters decided to distill the four evil of Ma Barker's four sons into one person, and the person of James Cagney's Cody Jarrett. And, of course, his ma, Jarrett, is the one who kind of makes him a, a psychopath, right? Or it's implied that he gets these massive headaches and only she can soothe him. And the idea of a domineering ma, you know, of a mother who creates a warped son is neatly aligned with some fears of that period and the post-war period that momism was on the rise, that these overindulgent women um, were corrupting a generation of men. By 1960, you know, later um, editions of the Ma legend, um, she does die um, bloodlessly, usually, <laughs> but with increasing, um, or I should say decreasing levels of uh, dignity. Arguably, the most popular cinematic treatment of the Ma Barker legend is Roger Corman's Bloody Mama. All right, now everybody reach for the ninth hand of the Lord. Reach! This is Bloody Mama, the incredible saga of Ma Barker and her boys, the most bloodthirsty killers in the history of crime. Bloody Mama was produced at the tail end of the turbulent 60s as the traditional roles of youth and gender were being challenged. It was also, incidentally, produced in parallel to the Manson family murders. Pursued by almost every lawman in the region, they never answered for their crimes, except to Mama. 
released on March 24th, 1970, Bloody Mama features a towering, scenery-chewing lead performance from Shelley Winters, who is accompanied on the screen by youthful method actors who inhabit the roles of her sons, Robert De Niro, Bruce Dern, Don Stroud, and Robert Walden. The origins of Corman's film go back a few years to the emergence of the groundbreaking Bonnie and Clyde. Hollywood was, was, was cashing in on that trend, not just Corman, but, you know, there were other movies too, like, you know, the Dillinger movie and, uh, you know, Bound for Glory, these movies that sort of took the Depression era um, and, and tried to turn them into almost, a, you know, metaphorical folk myths mm. uh, for, the, for the 60s and 70s. Esteemed film critic and author of Crab Monsters, Teenage Cavemen, and Candy Stripe Nurses, Roger Corman, King of the Bee Movie, Chris Nashawadi. You know, Bloody Mom is an interesting movie. It's got some really interesting stuff. I would say it, there are a couple things in the movie that it does even better than Bonnie and Clyde. Um, you know, it has this authenticity. When you look at some of the extras in the movie, um, they look like that they walked out of, you know, a Walker Evans photograph and they, they really could be from, you know, Arkansas or Tennessee in the thirties. It, it is an almost more of an honest film than Bonnie and Clyde, but Bonnie and Clyde is art and, and Bloody Mama is, is something slightly less than art. I think Corman was always eager to capitalize on a popular trend, but that's only one of many attributes that have made him the most influential independent film producer in the history of the movies. There are quite a few. I think that one that is especially important in uh, when we're investigating Bloody Mama is uh, the fact that he has always liked strong female protagonists. Author of the cinematography of Roger Corman, Pavio Alexandrovich. Some scholars even say that Corman can be credited with introducing a strong female protagonist to, to, to an action genre. You know, Corman even himself, himself said that that he considers himself uh, a feminist. Mm. And uh, Bloody Mama kind of like epitomizes, is the synthesis of all the ideas of a female protagonist, of a Corman's female protagonist. She's obviously evil, that, that's another story, but She's dominating the, the picture and all the characters physically, psychologically, and sexually. She exercises her authority over every man in the film. The film is interested in the way that maternal love turns into sexual desire for her sons and for their same age peers. The film is shocking, even by today's standards. In his gangster films, he does not romanticize criminals. He even said in one of the interviews, I do not believe criminals and gangsters should be romanticized. And then um, she shot four gangster films, uh, I Mobster, Machine Gun Kelly, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The, but Bloody Mama is the most vile, the most twisted and wicked on all of, of all of the films. And the people there, they are really... Well, they are really horrible. They are demented in every way possible. There is nothing romantic, nothing poetic about their activities. Bloody no. Mama has sex with her children. Uh, one of her sons is homosexual, so she has sex with her partner as well. 
um, one of the sons has a, has a girlfriend. She has sex with his brothers while he's watching. In short, everything that could have been good or romantic or poetic in the Barker gang. So things like motherly love, like uh, romantic relationships, brotherhood, friendship, parenting. All of this is twisted. It's degenerate. It's grotesque. Some scholars even say that Bloody Mama is Corman's most perverse film. And it's difficult not to agree. I think you have to be a certain kind of moviegoer to could say you enjoy it. Former story editor for Roger Corman and author of Roger Corman, Blood-Sucking Vampires, Flesh-Eating Cockroaches, and Driller Killers, Beverly Gray. Yeah, it, it's a movie you can't look away from. I guess that's the thing. It's it's kind of like a like a train wreck. You, <laughs> you've got to watch it. It presents every kind of vice you can possibly think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, it it does have that that raw energy, and Shelley Winters really goes for it. The cops were so busy shooting down the strikers during the depression. I guess they just didn't have much time to pay attention to us. Everybody was trying to make a buck any way they could. I told my boys, you just rob banks and stay out of trouble. Like there's the scene in which she mourns uh, one of the dead sons. Mm. And before the, to prepare for the scene, she called the funeral parlor, asked if she could come to the, to the chapel where there was a coffin with, you know, with some person ready for the, for the ceremony. And she would sit in the in the funeral parlor next to a coffee with some stranger inside to get ready for the scene, to feel, you know, the emotions of a mother losing or for a person losing somebody, specifically a mother losing a son. So she was when she came to they couldn't find her at the beginning, they started shooting, she wasn't there. And they found her at the parlor and she was completely in the mood, you know, for shooting the scene. Wow. So yes, she was she was an awesome actress, very dedicated. I think she's the best thing in the movie, and um, I think her performance is, is wonderful. Uh, you know, it's got a real sort of she wolf quality to it. Um, it's it's sort of haunting and scary, uh, and at the same time very charismatic. But apparently, reportedly, you know, when I when I talk to um, some of the people involved with making the movie. Uh, they said that, you know, Shelly and, and Roger, Shelly did not suffer fools, and she and Roger, it took them a while to sort of um, find common ground. I think she tried to steamroll him a little bit uh, in, in the first week or two of shooting. I think Bruce Dern was the one who told me that, you know, Shelly was really um, not the kind of person to take any shit from anyone, and, and um, Corman had his hands full with her, but I think after a while, she really became to came to respect uh, what he was doing and his talent, and um, sort of gave in a little bit uh, as time went on. Legendary musician and composer of Bloody Mama, Don Randy. With Bloody With Bloody Mama, you actually traveled to the set, didn't you? Yes, I did. We went to Arkansas. We we to uh, Bull Shoals, Arkansas. Mm. You'd land in Little in Little Rock, Arkansas, and then they'd take you by car way up into the Ozark Mountains. Did you have interactions with Shelley Winters? Yes, I did. <laughs> they sent me there to to uh, to keep her happy. 
<laughs> Whatever she take take all her suggestions because what unknown to me, she had an idea of what the music should be for this movie. Mm. And that was partly in her contract that she could select the songs. And I, nobody does that because I they they and they were never gonna listen to her no matter what she was gonna say. I don't know this. But I'm on location with uh uh Jerry and, and Guy Hammerick, who also helped me write, and and uh, I forget because uh, they, they they wrote for for AIP. They did a lot of the Frankie Avalon movies, uh, uh, which yeah. I also got to play on. So here we are, and she'd come back after we were there six weeks. She'd come back. She'd go the minute she had a break. She'd go to these little stores that are in the area. She'd have the car take her, you know, twenty miles away. And she'd find these little old music, and she'd come back, oh, Tom, I, I got this great idea. What do you think about this song? I said, that's a great idea, Shelley. And I'd sit down, had a little piano there, and we'd play. She said, well, I'm not too quite sure. I said, well, you know, if you do this. And, and, and so we, that's how it was for about the first three weeks. And then, of course, she didn't have time, and she and got, you know, the, the pressure was on to finish the film. Mm. I didn't take one song. <laughs> at all, because <laughs> they, they were they they were old folk things. It didn't, it didn't fit for where where Roger Corman was going. Yeah. So what what or what, or, or what I thought where Roger Roger Corman didn't even come to the sessions. He was already on another film. Much of Corman's Bloody Mama is vile and depraved, for sure, but it's also an infinitely watchable, surprisingly well-produced period piece with great, punchy performances. The tagline on Bloody Mama's poster, The Family That Slays Together Stays Together, might have hit upon a raw nerve in the era of the Manson family. After all, Corman had a particular expertise in provocation. But what, if anything, was Corman trying to say with the film, especially considering that it was produced during a time when parents and their children were never more distanced socially or politically, and the hippie movement was starting to turn in on itself? He likes the lurid. He, likes, he certainly likes action. He likes movies that are fast and snappy. And it's very rare for a movie of his to be over, you know, a, for a script of his to be over about 104 pages. Um, you know, it's, he's not going to make a two-hour movie. Yeah. He's, he gets bored, he's impatient, but his movies have a great sense of drive and movement, and he's very serious about that. He does like, despite the fact that he doesn't want to make any more message movies, he does like the idea that there's, something of substance beneath the surface. Midway through the film, Lloyd, played by Robert De Niro, sexually assaults a woman. Fearing that she'll turn the family into the authorities, Ma unmercifully drowns her, much to the consternation of her sons. Later in the film, the sons kidnap a wealthy businessman, Holding him hostage while awaiting the ransom, they begin to develop a sense of attachment to the man, much to the consternation of Mama. What color are your eyes? What difference does that make? 
My old man had blue eyes. Really blue. Why don't you take these goggles off and see what color my eyes are, sonny boy? They seem to ensure their own downfall once their unquestioning loyalty to their mother begins to fray. But there's another way of looking at it. In some sense, Ma Barker is a provocative character and one you don't often see on film. But on the other hand, the whole film is about ultimately overthrowing her power. And so, in a way, she's sort of a stand-in for the institutions that felt outmoded and inappropriate and primed to be revolted against. She stands for that in this maternal role. (laughs) Rather than mother worship, it's kind of showing that the sacred is actually the profane in this case. If you flip the script, like you couldn't have made this film if it was about a domineering dad who led a successful gang of sons, right? It would be a totally different film. <laughs> it wouldn't feel it wouldn't feel as perverse as it does. No, I think that's one reason that the film is so conservative. Ultimately, you know, even though it's about this overthrow, it's also just again just reinforces traditional structures of authority. These boys could have had a better life. These men could have had a better life if only they'd had a stronger dad. Because mm. that that seems like intentionally or not is the ultimate message of the film. Ma Barker loved her sons. She loved them everyone. Bloody Mama proved to be a resounding success at the box office. Like much of the cinema of that decade, it took a firmly established genre and pushed it to the extreme. Audiences of the time seemed all too eager to have their sensitivities challenged. Mama, bloody mama, sing me a lullaby. Mama, bloody mama, will me in that sweet by and by. The Woodstock Music and Art Fair, the three-day Aquarian Exposition at White Lake in Bethel, New York, will give you uncomplicated, unhurried, calm days of peace and music. As I recall, the sign said something about, welcome Aquarians to the Aquarium Music and Art Festival. Friday, August 15th, you'll hear stars such as Joan Baez, Arlo Guthrie, Tim Hart, Richie Havens, Ravi Shankar, and many others. We got to the festival grounds, and... Uh, walking out on, on on the top of the hill and looking down at the stage. and I mean, my jaw dropped. Saturday, August 16th, Can't Heat, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, Jefferson Airplane, at The Who. If you're close to the stage, you really yep. have, have no way of knowing how many people are standing behind you. You had no way of knowing yeah. how big this thing was, yeah. No clue. I realized, oh, man, I got to go use the, an outhouse. And that was the first time I actually stood up and turned around. Mm. And I looked up the hill and I said, holy shit. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Sunday, August 17th, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Santana, Jimi Hendrix, Johnny Winter, and that's not all. It felt like there really was a revolution going on in the country. And it was like joyous. All of these people were, they were high, they were happy, they were friendly, they were generous. It, it was a totally peaceful gathering of a half a million people. Campgrounds will be open for two days before the festival. There are over 600 acres of land to roam, bazaars to browse, creative workshops, 
Heavy traffic is anticipated, so leave early if you wish to arrive on time. I worked in a trucking company, so that atmosphere there was like I I had to have short hair and be really straight. After Woodstock, my, I changed completely. I I really did, and I became an anti-war activist. Did uh, did the march on Washington? Went to jail. You know, grew my hair out. Consequently, lost the job at the trucking company. So yeah, it had a profound effect on me. Albert Froment and Mike Bren were there. Two young adults in a sea of nearly a half a million people. The setting? A three-day music festival mounted on a massive stretch of dairy farmland in Bethel, New York. The backdrop? A raging war in Southeast Asia, a deeply divided America, and a counterculture that eagerly awaited its big summing up moment. They found it on the weekend of August 15th, 1969. Have I helped advance Jimi Hendrix's cause? That's the question. You know, he threw down a gauntlet to all of us on Monday morning at around 9.30 on August 18th, was making a statement. It was not idle. He wanted us to change society. And he didn't use words. He used his amplifier, you know. Yeah. And I wish to hell that we could implement what he was talking about. The statement of Woodstock might have remained a kind of mythical secret shared only among the hundreds of thousands that were there that day, had it not been for Woodstock the Documentary. Released on March 26, 1970, the film allowed countless millions to share in the grand ambitions of this cultural touchstone. Its technical brilliance and remarkably acute sense of time and place have kept Woodstock alive for over five decades. Ironically, this massive production only started to come together less than two weeks before that mid-August weekend. Associate Producer, Dale Bell. I realized when I was in the shipping room at ABC in 1961, and it was my first job in the media, I was shipping Ozzie and Harriet and Naked City and Leave It to Beaver and Donna Reed off to stations across the country And it was as though I was sending pills out, like big pharma, to everybody to say, hope, this is what the country can become. Yes. You can be like Donna Reed or Ozzie and Harriet, and you can have this sense of affluence, if you will. 
I was brought in by the president on the day after JFK's assassination. And Ali Treas said, just be here because I think you can help these people who are receiving the live feeds from all over the world. And I found my milieu right then and there. And I said, oh, my God, I might be able to do something in this in this realm. So I, I really Im immerse myself in what media could become. And fortunately, I was asked a couple of months later by somebody in that room to join him in public television. And that was March of 1964. And that was like the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, C.S. Lewis. I went through those wardrobe doors and out into this magic land where I would be part of a team. At that point in 1966, I get a knock on my door, a knock on my door, and it turns out to be a guy called Michael Wadley and John Binder. And Michael and John said, we're a brand new camera team. I've, I'm the filmer. John is the sound person. And we'd like to work for you because we've heard great things. We hired John and we hired Michael. From that day forward, Michael and John and I became really close friends. And I recommended John and Michael to other producers at uh, NET, National Educational Television. And then Michael branched out and got other work. He was, he was brilliant at finding new ways to tell stories and to use equipment. So from, 60, from 66 up through 69, he and I would work together intermittently, and he would work with other people. He would work with Merv Griffin. Merv Griffin enabled him and his company to hire a young woman who was an editor whose name was Thelma Schoonmaker. And they were also learning from another guy called Marty Scorsese how to kind of do some editing and, and playing around. And Marty would show Thelma how to do stuff and Michael would. And they bought a piece of gear in 1968 called the Chem. And the CAM, K-E-M, was a platform on which you could edit three pictures and one track of sound, or two pictures and two tracks of sound, or different configurations. And it became the design mechanism for what we would then employ as we decided to go ahead to make the, the movie Woodstock. But it was not a straight line, Jamie. This was a, a real zig and a zag. Michael was all filming somewhere else. The music that we heard on the radio announcing the Woodstock Festival we'd heard starting in January. I was not working with them at that particular time. I wouldn't join them until about June. But there were a lot of rumbles in New York about who's going to make this film. The Maisels were there, and Porter Bibb was trying to get rights to the performers and rights for the film, and I had some skill in that as well, and decided that there was one way to make the film, that if we filmed it, we would own it, mm. and that we didn't need rights necessarily, we could work out the rights later on. Thursday night, it was the 7th of August. The festival was to begin on the 15th, Friday a week. On that Thursday night, the Maisels and 
Michael and I and Bob and John and a batch of other people met and we showed them a film that had been edited by Thelma, financed by Merv Griffin. It was Aretha Franklin mm. singing two numbers. Michael and his team had filmed it not only with a single camera, but with three cameras. And Thelma had edited those three cameras, and then we played them back on three projectors against one wall with wraparound sound. Mm. And there was not a dry eye in the house when you finished playing these two, uh, showing, exhibiting uh, these two pieces, We Shall Overcome and R-E-S-P-E-C-T. It was phenomenal. That was the design, and that was August 7th. Mm. Okay? That, it was after that that we decided that, yes, we could do it if we could gather the the equipment and the, uh, and the raw stock together and the people. Cinematographer Malcolm Hart. It was a great social revolutionary event, you know. We shot a lot of stuff, and um, the radio started telling us that... Uh, Thousands of people were converging on the site, and uh, and we waited for Michael Wadley and his crew. We were expecting a, a one camera and maybe two, but he came with a dozen cameras, all with massive zoom lenses and, I mean, state-of-the-art eclairs. And uh, but as soon as Wadley turned up with this huge crew of uh, cameramen and soundmen. Uh, we we uh, checked out. We didn't uh, do anything after that. The, all we had done was work was the work that was being done before the show. In the situation such as this, we must return the responsibility to you. We Cinematographer Richard Pierce. What are the memories that are, are most deeply kind of seared into your brain from that experience? Uh, the final morning, um, the Star Spangled Banner, oh, yeah. you know, uh, being played, shooting that, leaning back against a speaker that was pumping that out to 500,000 people and, and holding a shot and feeling like I'm right, I'm getting this, and I'm getting it, I'm getting it right, um, was will stay with me for the rest of my life. I remember thinking to myself, the, when I arrived by motorcycle, there was a complete rainstorms, mud everywhere, as you may or may not remember, that, that it looked like um, the traffic was miles, miles backed up. It looked like a, a makings of a disaster. And, and uh, you know, if if... If it was me, if somehow somebody had said, well, Dick, you have to make the decision. Are, you, are we going to go forward with this or are we going to just consider that cut our losses? <laughs> I would have said cut, cut your losses. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I was dead wrong. So I had no idea. Uh, it was just one of those magical things. On stage, there were probably about 25 people who were kind of working together on and off in shifts. There were four or five, six cameramen and support people under the stage. We had teams of people under the stage who were changing film magazines. 
and then they stayed there while there were assistants who were carrying the film magazines from one part of under the stage to the edge of the stage in the front and passing them up to the cameramen who were on the stage mm. and then labeling them when they came back again. So there was a lot of, you know, coordination. Yeah. 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 And you have all, all those, uh, you had to corral this massive group to, 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 to hopefully get something out of this uh, event and I, I would imagine there were a bunch of walkie-talkies going, uh, the, the communication back and forth. But when you saw that this was so much larger than anyone had any idea it would be, I'm wondering when it occurred to you, we have to not only capture what's happening on stage, but what's happening in the audience, where these people are coming from, why they're there, the whole culture of it. To me, they were more important. The audience was more important than what was going on on stage because I figured that Michael was much more involved in what was going on on stage and coordinating with his three, four, five, sometimes six camera teams and the, uh, the people. And Marty was there on stage and Thelma was there on stage as his assistant directors. So the stage was sort of kind of managed by itself. It was the why the people were there, where had they come from, what stories did they represent, what could we extract from them, were they part of a, if you will, a counterculture, did they have dreams or aspirations or fears or anxieties, did they have people who they knew who had been lost in Vietnam. We were telling a story about not only a decade but a couple of decades that had coagulated in the 1960s with the civil rights movement, with the women's rights movement, with the workers' rights movement, with the LGBT burgeoning movement, with the Vietnam War, with the anti-Vietnam War, with the protest movement, with this whole feeling that we were being totally oppressed by a very affluent society and that we needed space in which to create values that were much different than those represented by money. You know, there were a lot of people up there who were escaping and there were a lot of people who found refuge in um, being together, making love, protesting, doing yoga and falling in love with the environment. The world was a divisive place in 1969, but Woodstock represented a rare and peaceful coming together, not only between the youthful hippies, but the older generations who lived in the area, who had previously felt suspicious and threatened by the counterculture. We owned Swan Lake at the time and ran a small boat livery, like, you know, 60 little motorboats, and, and they were all sitting out there, you know, just you didn't put them away at night you just tied them up woodstock attendee mike bren so my father uh, a staunch republican he kind of had that mindset that uh, he was scared stiff that the hippies were going to destroy his boat dock so he he went down there friday night and he was going to spend the whole night guarding his boats and what ended up happening was a bunch of kids showed up, asked him if they could camp in the parking lot, and he started talking to them, and they were really nice to him, they were friendly, they were respectful, and 
he spent like three hours chatting with them and uh, came home and his whole attitude toward the whole business had changed. And I think that happened to most of the people in that area. They had, they had their attitudes toward, towards uh, the counterculture just flipped 180 degrees. We have a gentleman with us. It's the gentleman upon whose farm we are, Mr. Max Yasger. I'm a farmer. I don't know. I don't know how to speak to 20 people at one time, let alone a crowd like this. But I think you people have proven something to the world. Not only to town of Bethel or Sullivan County or New York State, you've proven something to the world. This is the largest group of people ever assembled in one place. The important thing that you've proven to the world is that a half a million kids, and I call you kids because I have children older than you are, a half a million young people can get together and have three days of fun and music and have nothing but fun and music, and I God bless you for it. It's safe to say that the people who were there took Woodstock home with them and have kept the experiences in their hearts for the remainder of their lives. But for those who weren't there, the film would serve as the major conduit which would allow them to share in this historic moment of peace and togetherness. When shooting completed, I would imagine there was a sense of, oh my God, I hope we got it. I hope we captured it. Was there a nervousness? Did we get what we need? <laughs> I'm going I'm to spew out some numbers here, okay? Okay. We filmed in three days with about 14 camera teams, some of whom were shooting a lot, some of whom were shooting a little we shot something like 350,000 feet of film. Audio. The soundtrack from the stage was one of the most muddled ever captured and had to be totally reprocessed. About a 60% of our footage had been allocated to the, uh, to the music, to the, what had been going on on stage. So there were only 40% or so that was uh, capturing what was going on uh, at the site. We had no idea whether it was good, whether it was in sync, whether the color on the negative uh, was going to come through. We had to go through so many processes. Mm. We had to put the film through different laboratories because we could not chance that one laboratory might have good soup uh, laboratory solutions uh bad soup or whatever it was it was both a nightmare but it was also uh we were approaching it almost militaristically so there was a whole juggling of stuff and half of the film was out of sync with its soundtrack so trying to marry a soundtrack to the proper role of film was an almost impossible task. We finally, after about two weeks of trial and error, we converted to a 24-hour, three-shift uh, strategy. 
and brought in all of the gear that we could find in New York and began to import these flatbed cam editing tables, uh, not only from Germany, but from around the country, so that in the end we had four cams and multiple steam backs and still upright moviolas and people working 24-hour or eight, three eight-hour shifts in order to try to synchronize sound with picture. It wow. was there, there was a period of time, Jamie, from um, August 18 through, I'm going to say, probably the middle of October, when we had no idea what we had, really, except that it was being formulated in these shifts on the editing tables that were so crowded uh, that people who were using rewinds uh, were bumping into each other because there was somebody else who was uh, rewinding right next to them. And of course, the editorial decisions that were really in front of Thelma and her team of both editors and assistant editors and Michael and Marty were constantly vying for attention. Who was going to really be working on the documentary footage? Who was going to be working on Shanana? Who was going to work on... Uh, uh, Santana, who was going to do the Jimi Hendrix piece, who was going to do the Richie Havens piece, who was going to do the, the uh, Joe Cocker, you know, all of these decisions. And we knew from the beginning, even before we began to film, that we were going to be using multiple images and that we wanted, that we wanted to create an experience for the audience. We wanted the audience to be in the middle of a total wraparound kind of experience with images left, right, and center, and behind them, so that as images move from left to right or right to left, and maybe wrapped around, you'd hear the helicopter sound going behind from left ear to the right ear, if you were in the audience. All of these were considerations. No one had ever done an optical this long, because every piece of footage had to become an optical. The sound mixing was more complicated than anything that had ever been done before. Warner Brothers had to reconfigure their mix studio to accommodate this movement of sound from left to right to the center. Did, so, you, did you feel that Warner Brothers was uh, supportive through the process, that they, that they, they believed in, in, in the project? Uh, both yes and no, and everything in between. Uh, Warner Brothers wanted the movie. There were a lot of people who wanted the movie, but I think we thought that Warner Brothers probably understood it a little bit better than anybody else. Fred Weintraub was sort of in the lead there. And Fred Weintraub, at one point in September, as I recall, or maybe it was in October, came into our uh, post-production house in uh, our offices on Broadway and 81st Street, and said, you know, we've got, we've got to have this picture out by December. It's got to be, I don't care about these multiple images or anything else, we've got to have it done by December. We have to get the college crowd, we've got to be in there. You know, and we all kind of looked at each other and said, no way are we ever going to be able to do that. We did not look at our rough cut of the edited film until the end of November. And it was eight hours long. So 
we took an eight-hour film to California to begin to talk to the optical houses and to the sound houses, the sound processing houses, the sound mixing houses, and to get a new team of people around us who knew how to navigate those places. We did not show Warner Brothers a finished optical with a mixed soundtrack until March 10th. Wow. They saw a four-hour version at that time, but they had deals with their exhibitors for a film that was no was going to be no longer than two hours and 50 minutes. <laughs> so they came to the screening saying, well, we've got to get rid of that, 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 how are we going to have two films? Because, of course, the exhibitors wanted to sell popcorn and, and uh, chili pops. Things happened on the lot, which I can't say publicly. <laughs> but uh, we protected our interests and we believed the integrity of the film by, by taking dramatic action to preserve uh, what we thought this movie ought to be. For those of you who have forgotten, for those of you who haven't forgotten, and for those of you who never knew, Woodstock, the people, the vibes, the music. Swing Woodstock, where it all began. Woodstock would go on to become one of the highest grossing films of 1970, and it even took home the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. To this day, it stands as one of the most beloved documentaries of all time, and a soothing yet urgent reminder of the potential we can achieve through art and shared experience. What was your experience watching the movie during a public screening and experiencing it through their eyes? Uh... Tears. Mm. Exhilaration. <sighs> we felt the audience of four, five hundred thousand people on our backs and the potential audience globally. We knew we had an enormously powerful film like nothing that had ever been done in the history of cinematography music. This is what JFK had said outside the Kennedy Center. When the dust settles, art will reign. Art will endure. And we hope that we've done that with this movie.
We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Movie Geek Yearbook, exploring the films released during the month of April 1970. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Shock, horror, suspense. Created with all the technological brilliance of 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yes, folks, this isn't any cheap X-rated movie or any fifth-rate porno play. This is the show you want. I'm going to come up and I rip her clothes off. It's fantastic. Great stuff. Movie Geek Yearbook will return soon with Episode 4. Be sure to visit our website at moviegeekyearbook.com for premiere dates, guest bookings, and to support our efforts through Patreon where you'll receive advanced access to future episodes and our archive of uncut interviews from the series. (laughs) 